Greetings, art and labor listeners. Lucia here with a presentation from the revolutionary art course I've been facilitating through Constructing the Real, the school for debt-averse anarchists. On this recording, you'll hear Vinny discuss Brazilian neoconcretist Ligia Clark's experimental art career with an emphasis on her interactive bichu sculptures and a subsequent conversation on what the art object can do to alleviate alienation. If you like what you hear and are interested in joining us, please check out constructingthereal.com where you can find updates on our current upcoming courses and a contact email to join our school community. Beginning Thursday, April 29th at 8 p.m. Eastern, we'll also be hosting a brand new course on art communes, run by Hannah Brookman from Looky Here Art Space in Greenfield, Massachusetts. The curriculum will center around reading the book Art and Labor by Eileen Boris and watching documentaries on a new collective every week. Should be a great crash course for anyone considering ditching capitalism for that sexy utopia that is living with all your friends in a buckyball. Course enrollment is open now, so I hope to see you all around for some learning, and let's have fun. Today I want to talk about uh, Ligia Clark, which was a, a Brazilian artist, uh, ranged from painting to sculptures, and then also had lots of um, experiments with artist therapy. Specifically, I'm going to be talking about her series of sculptures called Bichus. And our story starts in the 1950s in Brazil. There was this intense economic growth, uh, especially due to uh, elected president Juscelino Kubitschek in the latter half of the decade, which had like a development uh, plan called, uh, we're going to advance 50 years in five years, like in reference to his term. And this was especially um, marked by the creation of Brasilia, which is the current capital uh, of Brazil. And it was this complete planned city, uh, especially with the architecture, as you can see, uh, was done by the renowned architect, Oscar Niemeyer, which had lots of influence from the Bauhaus. So you can see lots of uh, usage of concrete material and not much color and everything is like very similar form and uh, this political context also played part in the development of a art movement called the concrete art movement which was ignited by uh, Max Bill which was also like a Bauhaus alumni and then uh, uh, started creating these concrete art style and then when there was an exhibition done on Sao Paulo on the Museum of Modern Art the all these the concepts uh, of like this objective style heavily serialized uh, a focus on making uh, form experiments like even color is thought to be uh, too subjective and leaving a space for the observer to uh, interpret things uh, it was really new to Brazilian artists and especially on Sao Paulo it started to create a scene which uh, also intertwined with the the industry growing and all the instrument instrumentalist points of views and as 
a response from that, you had uh, a scene in Rio de Janeiro, and it's important to say like Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro uh, were at the time and to this day are basically the two uh, cultural capitals of Brazil. Like they are kind of the, the, the places where you get seen. Um, and so you kind of have these fights between movements there that may, might seem bigger than they actually are in terms of history, especially because art history here isn't as concerned with other regions, especially, you know, the North, uh, which is where mostly marginalized people are. Yeah, I mean, Sao Paulo and Rio Janeiro are also the cities that have the most money. So, uh, but uh, Rio de Janeiro, there was a group uh, of seven artists that didn't really like the concrete movement. And they created this movement that was meant to be a response to it called the New Concrete Art Movement. And they wanted to rescue the subjectivity. They wanted to uh, make a statement that expression was essential to art and you couldn't just focus on making variations of form. And this was mostly done through like these seven uh, people and it is in more inflation that it was big in relevance. And they started it in 1959 where they did the, this first exhibition and uh, they released a new concrete manifesto uh, showing what their, their goals were and what they wanted to do with art. So this here is the cover uh, for the manifesto that came. It was a booklet where you could get on the exhibition. And there was a couple of ideas where they thought out the, the concept of like heavily serialized and uh, objective art from the concrete movement was only an instrument to the eye and that art uh, instead should be able to grasp the world and the self uh, in order to be able to make people um, have self-reflection and be able to perceive the world in different ways than before they met the, the artwork. And uh, they would use the frame as uh, an example of this barrier, like putting a painting on a frame is basically creating a barrier between the art and the world is what makes the, uh, the elitism of the artwork possible, is what makes the intentions of the artist be more important than interpretation of the observer. And so they would uh, claim that not only would have to take the barrier off, but also that art is not supposed to be a machine or an object, and they would call it a quasi-body or almost body, because it would only be complete when there, were, there would be an interaction with the observer. And many of the new concrete artists would actually call the observer or the person who is uh, looking or interacting with the, the artwork as a participant. Uh, much like the performance arts. And so if you look at the names here of who signed the manifesto, you can see that uh, Ligia Clark is right there. Uh, there are some uh, writings that theorize that actually most of these concepts were, uh, were developed by Ligia, uh, Ligia alone, and then the other ones followed her, but I didn't find many proof of that on the disputes. 
And so let's talk about uh, Ligia herself. Like, she's actually a, a latecomer to art. She only started at uh, 27. And she came from this really rich uh, upper class family. Uh, so, which allowed her to do a lot of uh, exploration in art. I mean, she started at 27, and at 30, she was already traveling to Paris to uh, study there, which is uh, very hard for any Brazilian artist uh, to this day. And she also married uh, a rich person, which after divorce meant she got 86 apartments which then she used to, uh, to finance her art by selling them out. Uh, also, this is something that I'm probably not gonna be able to explore much on the talk, but I think it's important to note that both her relationship, both her relationship uh, with the husband and the family uh, appear to be very abusive from her letters to other artists and the like. And so she would develop a view uh, that art was supposed to or it could be used to change uh, the world, but especially like for uh, self-actualization and to change your points of view. Uh, it definitely also influenced her uh, work after the, the Bichus, where she did lots of uh, art therapy experiments and started uh, going a lot into uh, psychoanalysis and the like. She was uh, also a leftist worker, uh, artist, uh, she actually, together, a lot of other artists had to escape from Brazil during the dictatorship years, as she was already pretty famous, and she hanged out with lots of, like, uh, Trotsk Trotskists uh, and the like. And also, she would throughout her career uh, go from, like, paintings to sculptures to performance art, but she would always refuse to be called an artist because uh, she believed the... Her work was about disengaging uh, with the art world and the idea of the artist because she was very, uh, she had a very strong belief in that uh, the art is only complete when there's a participant with it. So, uh, talking about uh, the art can change the world aspect, she wrote a letter to Mondrian in 59, uh, which uh, I found from this article, which uh, goes deeper into her struggles and the, the abuse stuff uh, by Ben Davis, what you will find at the MoMA's Ligia Clark show, Ligia Clark, uh, in which Ben Davis writes, in a truly extraordinary letter to Mondrian of May 1959, Clark expressed her faith in the idea of an art that could literally heal the world around her. If I work, Mondria, my reason is more than anything to achieve myself in the highest ethical religious sense. It's not just to make one surface and another. And so uh, all these concepts will really start to take form uh, in her Bichus, which is kind of the middle point of her career, uh, where she started creating these... Uh, she left paintings and started to make sculptures, and uh, Bichus is kind of her most famous work. And there's a problem I found while looking through like uh, English articles about no one, none of them really address the name because vicious uh, can be translated, it's often translated to animals or in some cases to beast, but it loses uh, part of the meaning in Portuguese where vicious uh, is kind of a cute way of calling an animal. It's kind of like a middle term between an animal and pet 
in terms of the word, like it's a bit more playful. And that, uh, and that makes sense because it's supposed to be something you play with. Uh, so Bishus are uh, a series of around 70 pieces uh, of these sculptures made of uh, metal plates. They are all joined by hinges. Uh, each one of them has different formats. And so they're supposed to be handled by whoever uh, is uh, interacting with them. And the one makes uh, Bishus stand out is that while they look like maybe an origami piece, they are actually done in ways that they have, uh, you can have co total control of how, it, of how they are handled because of the way the shapes are done and all the weight of the metal. So it ends up having this sort of logic to its movement. Uh, you kind of have to understand the logic of, of how you fold each plate or move them around. Otherwise, it's just going to fall flat on the surface. So it's kind of like you have to understand how it speaks so you can speak with them. And so uh, Ligia would call this like transforming the almost body to a body-to-body -body relationship, which would then allow the, the participant to be focused on the present now of the act. Uh, Ligia really believed in uh, making the participant aware of the body and the surroundings and uh, as to break the round between the art and the world and also to have these uh, possibilities of self-reflection and addressing, uh, you know, the change of perception when you're focused on the now. So uh, kind of want to show some videos of how some of these pieces are handled. Um, so here's one of them. Uh, each of them has their own name, but it's kind of hard to find. But as you can see, uh, also the hinges are very apparent. And that was uh, a choice uh, by Ligia because she wanted the material qualities to be always present. So. Uh, it resembled like a body it, it, as if it had organic parts and wasn't supposed to be like this perfect idealistic thing. And so here you say like, uh, they, they found a way to make the, the plate still, but it cuts away, but you can see like it's kind of fumbling because it had uh, pushed the plates in, let's say a wrong way, right? Uh, between the logic of the, of the, the animal or organism. Oops, take the sound off. Uh, so this is another one. Uh, this one, you can see it's way more rectangular. And then there's some, the hinges are across the body instead of just being uh, on the edges. Uh, it kind of resembles like a binder of sorts. But then as you open up, you see there's these circle forms. It's very regular. And it's really hard to make it like stand still. Uh, show the, the last one here. This is uh, the triangular ones for some reason are like the ones that get mo most recognition. And I kind of have a theory because they are like the most aesthetically pleasing to look at. Uh, which we'll come back later. Uh, but if you search for pictures, you're mostly getting these that look more like origami. 
guess also they are kind of easier to make them stand still and not fold. So yeah, so coming back, um, in summary, like the theory uh, I kind of want to present as revolutionary uh, potential in Legion's work is that it's kind of like the daily of glasses, where by uh, interacting with this, uh, these works by Ligia, you're kind of uh, getting to know your senses a bit better and getting away from alienation even for like a bare instant. So uh, this reminded me of a book which uh, we've talked previously on, on this group, uh, which is uh, Jenny O'Dell's Help Do Nothing, where uh, there's a chapter where she talks about going to see a John Cage uh, performance or a performance of a piece by John Cage, but you know, John Cage wasn't there. And uh, she describes how, um, how after seeing it, it changed how she would hear sound because you know, it's all, uh, John Cage had all these pieces about uh, improvisation of sounds and doing lots of like sound effects and uh, mixing different sounds and the like. So I kind of want to read a quote out of that. Uh, chapter. So, more than just the conventions of the symphony hall were broken open that night, I walked out of the symphony hall down Grove Street to catch the Muni and heard every sound with a new clarity. The cars, the footsteps, the wind, the electric buses. Actually, it wasn't so much that I heard these clearly as that I heard them at all. How was it, I wondered, that I could have lived in a city for four years already? even having walked down the street after a symphony performance so many times and never have actually heard anything. So um, this really makes me think because as we see, uh, especially during these COVID years, art is getting reduced in mainstream culture more and more as like escapism, right? Uh, like uh, we're giving more and more space to things that are easy to focus at or to pay attention to or even like we just want stuff to um make our minds busy like i mean there's lo-fi hip-hop we listen to to be able to focus while we're working there's uh easy to watch tv shows we live in the background just to have something going on uh, you know all the hollywood movies now being referenced to previous movies because that's stuff that's comfortable to us and so the idea of like using artworks to um, make us have to pay attention is something I've been thinking more and more. And I think it's something we're gonna have to explore more. Uh, if you want to like break away from the attention economy, I mean, it's getting harder and harder for us to focus on stuff and actually do our things. And um, there aren't many avenues that are going to do that in a healthy way. I mean, you can definitely like go to a doctor, it's probably going to say you have ADHD and give you a bunch of riddle and it's going to be that. It's not going to really address the problem. It's just going to make you numb to it. And uh, so having these sorts of works would maybe be a way for us to start thinking of uh, alternatives. But then as I, uh, as I did research for this talk, I kind of got stuck with a question of like, okay, uh, this is a possibility, but it kind of got assimilated by capitalism as most work uh, gets, to, uh, gets done to. 
So uh, as I mentioned, like there were around 70 versions of Bichus and most of them have been uh, auctioned and sold for high quantities of money. And there are some that remain in, uh, to the Clark family and they have some really bad quotes about uh, Ligia Clark. They basically say, she was rich, she married a rich dude, she didn't care about us, so we kind of have to sell so we can pay our bills, even though they're like from rich families. So they kind of, um, yeah, they kind of gatekeep these artworks uh, a lot to the point that like Brazilian curators have complained that it's too expensive to make ex exhibitions of them. And even when uh, there are ex ex exhibitions, like uh, there was a recent one at the MoMA, uh, they use replicas. Uh, they do replicas of them so people touch those so the, uh, the originals can be stored and like shown in, in I don't know, uh, glass cases or something. So we're doing the aura thing. We are making them to be like these valuable, uh, magical objects that we have to preserve, which is exactly everything that Ligia Clark went against. Uh, in fact, while doing research, I found this interview uh, to a Brazilian newspaper, which I did a translation here, it's probably gonna sound a bit off, but um, uh, this was like 10 years later, uh, after the Bichu's uh, expositions, exhibitions were done, and she uh, says, I wanted to do thousands of copies that would be sold in the corners of street stores, but nobody with money believed it. It was going to be cheap and everyone could have one. Today, it is an artwork in museums. And in fact, like uh, Lydia had done uh, several studies uh, with uh, cardboard paper, which would, she would then use to like make the, the metal replicas because she also wanted to do like uh, various sizes of which vicious are like actually some big ones, like uh, three, four times the size of a human. And what really uh, uh, caught my attention here was the concept of the street stores, which is actually like a, Brazilian word, which is camelos, which are street stores that specifically only sell bootleg products. And there's like uh, pirated DVDs of like movies or video games, and there's a bunch of like bootleg copies of um, branded clothing and the like. And this is something that's really present in Brazilian culture and actually has led to uh, a lot of unique parts of our culture. Like, uh, because we, there's lots of problems with um, inequality here, more, uh, more than like a lot of the global uh, North countries. And also during the dictatorship years, uh, a lot of stuff couldn't get in from other countries. So uh, we kind of ended, ended up making our remixed versions of international works. Uh, here I have uh, pictures of some arcade games. These, these were actually like, um, American games that they would import the arcades here, then they would make like versions, uh, non-gradient versions of them to fit Brazilian culture. And so they could like sell them as actually being Brazilian and then the government would allow them to circulate. And this led to several titles that only exist in Brazil and have been made part of like our, our folklore. And then uh, our reference to this day and like art or songs and things like that. And also piracy in general is here was, it's getting uh, 
less popular now because Netflix, Spotify, and all the comfort stuff is getting to dominate things here. But we we kind of made an entire culture around these uh, workarounds of not having money to access these things or being prohibited from accessing these things that uh, Clark's idea really represents uh, an alternative, right? Of like um, making things that are like mass distributed in cheap ways. Uh, her niece actually ended up making uh, her, her wishes come true. And recently there has been um, a commercial version of it that this one it's sold for like it's around $30 uh, it's in Brazil so that's more expensive than it sounds too uh, and like I said you can see like it's plastic and it has nice colors it's also like the pleasant shape so it's kind of more commercial version already so even then like okay this is more accessible but it's still like kind of an assimilated version of it. Um, but there has also been works where people are getting uh, these uh, studies of Clark and remaking them with uh, paper. So they're teaching people how to make these works at home. And of course, like doing them with paper probably lose some of the, the attrition and weight of using metal plates. But it can be a start to start like, Okay, how we can rethink how we distribute uh, these works. So to summarize, uh, whoops, go back. I have a couple of questions I wanted to introduce with this concept and why I think uh, Ligia Clark's work is revolutionary or at least has revolutionary potential. Can art help us break away from alienation and the need to escape from life? Uh, how do we resist to be assimilated by the market, even when we have these ideas of uh, paying attention to the now and resisting alienation? And how do we actually transform our works to be reproduced by others so we can reach more people and avoid our works just become uh, expensive things stored in museums and then the children of men scene happens and uh, the, all the artworks there to no one to be seen? And yeah, that's it. Yay. Yay. <laughs> that was great. Wow. Great job. Thanks. Oh, I love her. She's really cool. Uh, the art therapy stuff is actually really cool to look at too because she does some crazy stuff. Like she has one, uh, it's a group exercise where actually I think I can show it. There's a avant-garde movie she did that has a scene. Uh, no, that's avant-garde. Uh, Clark here, where she has a dude just uh, lie down, and then everyone else just start like chewing stuff and putting on top of him. <laughs> because it's like she starts exploring this idea of like a, a communal body. Oh. <laughs> I mean, you can't see bodies on YouTube. <laughs> is it a therapy or a performance piece? It's supposed to be therapy, but she was never like uh, an actual therapist, but she studied a lot of stuff on her on her time. But there was some backlash of like, you can't say you're a therapist. Uh -huh. So uh, let me check. This is another one. Like 
after Bichu's, most of our work was just about these body things. So here they do a network. No, it's not that one. I think it's here. <clears throat> so yeah, there's a dude underneath this shit. They are just eating stuff. <laughs> yeah. Start up here, the shadow one. Wow. <laughs> Reminds me of Jodorowsky. Yeah, he does. And those kinds of magical acts as therapy. He also is a self-proclaimed therapist doing similar, very similar things. Yeah. A lot nicer than Herman Nitsch, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, now but now you suck about the weird body thing. That's cool though. <laughs> no, you're here yeah, to talk I'll... about about her not wanting to be a museum artist, but more wanting to be like a manufacturer or, or even like engineer or something to get have these ideas that uh like coming up with public use designs is that kind of what she's trying to do um well it's not necessarily like thinking of them as tools i think she wouldn't actually like that but it's about like uh well she thought art has a purpose to heal the world but then her artwork just ended up locked the museums and it, she actually tried like uh, to get them to be reproduced, but she didn't have, she probably had wasted, like not wasted, but used all the money she had from the apartments on like getting the work seen and stuff that she couldn't finance herself. And then no one wanted to finance the, the like uh, market copies. Mm. That's a fascinating approach though. I, I like, I really like what she was trying to do, you know, trying to get the art to the masses, you know, and it's pretty awesome. It kind of reminds me of when Duchamp made those like rotoscope things and uh, tabled at one of the, the international fairs with it. Uh, mm -hmm. It, yeah, it, yeah, it's like, it feels like that era people kind of have this approach of like, yeah, it's, I'm an artist, but also I'm like sort of an inventor or something. <laughs> when yep. she, when she was wanting other people, or when she was thinking that art would heal people, was she thinking that them practicing art would be healing, or them experiencing good art would be healing? Um, she was thinking that having art that had people break away from like. Uh, focusing on the now would lead them to do self-reflection and then self-actualization. Yeah, wasn't there, there was something going on kind of like historically around the 50s then? It was like the concretists were like, uh, res like responding to the the rest of the art world with like a rationality or something yeah 
and and then and then this was sort of like uh like the neoconcretists looked at that and said like this rationality is actually kind of like uh like uh imperialist and they're there and it leaves out the individual so if if people actually have the opportunity to to engage with art then like it, it doesn't matter if they're making it or not but it's more maybe about like having an authentic experience. Yeah, uh, in the manifesto, they actually, uh, they actually, yeah, they call out the, the rationality thing as like, uh, as a dangerous uh, idea and that they want to go against that. Because like at a time in Brazil, even even color was thought to be like too expressive for the the concrete artists. Like it was all about just doing shapes in different creative ways. But there there was also kind of um like a there was an influence of um like constructivism too, right? That it was yeah, yeah it was sort of like I I don't know how the how um. I was thinking of, cause I saw the, the uh, Ligia uh, retrospective when it was at MoMA and the- Red. Yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of weird actually because the, it, everything, like it, it, they had the costumes and like all the stuff from performances too, but it was all like against walls and stuff and you have to like wait until there were designated people at the specific times that could like handle the thing for you. And if you didn't go at the right time, they were like, Oh, sorry. It's just stuff hanging on a wall. Like try to try to get the idea that you're not supposed to feel alienated. <laughs> like, Yeah, totally. They, they, they can just like let it go and let it be. It, it, it still has to have this like, era uh, like or of um it's a precious piece of art even, even though like you're saying it was a lot of replicas yeah it was cool though to see like cause, i mean because she she also was painting and kind of like working out all of these geometric forms and and then there was something about like um when she was painting then they're, they're, she was making like uh, frames, but then the frames and the painting kind of blended together. And, and she was like really into the line between the frame and the painting and then made all these kind of like canvas constructions. And, and then all of a sudden it went like three dimensional and was like, whoa, actually there's no top or bottom or anything like, yeah, that's her previous work to the Bichus, where she, she called those organic lines and it's where she was trying to destroy the frame, right? Like she wanted to blend art and world together. Love that. Cool. Yeah, it's kind of cool to think about, like, it's like blending the world and, the, and art together and then, and then if the sculpture is a body and, and you're a body and, and you're kind of like meeting this thing then maybe there's a way for the because the sculpture doesn't have a right way to be so then it could kind of show you that you don't have a right way to be or like there's not there's not like directions for the way you're supposed to be moving through the world 
And it's cool that she doesn't call herself an artist. Yeah. I'm always like a fan it. of that as well. <laughs> um, I wanted to address your second question. How do we resist to be assimilated by the market? Um, it's, I think you were onto something with um, showing this, the bootleg street markets. Um, so I would say like, you know, it, yeah. And, and, and kind of what you're saying, like now people are kind of like adapting, like her, her designs are like widely available so that like people can like make them themselves out of paper. Perhaps if she had had the foresight at the time to just sort of like release the designs, let, <laughs> and like vend, vend them at, at, on the street herself or like. Yeah, these, 3D print them. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that is kind of like, that is a little revolutionary. The fact that you can 3D print a gun is a little bit revolutionary to yeah. me. And uh, like torrenting and, and piracy, I think are all like good things for a revolution. Like uh, the fact that like hackers were trying to get the vaccine IP free, like that's revolutionary mm -hmm. to me. And like, so that sort of like, um, yeah, bootlegging, uh, stealing IP, like, type thing I think um, is part of the equation of that perhaps yeah go on Nick oh well what's so funny about it is this is this art is probably the easiest to counterfeit like you know talking about like whenever there's like the movies on Netflix or whatever where it's like this person fooled a whole bunch of people because they were able to kind of imitate a brushstroke until we examined the paint and realized mm -hmm. that this paint wasn't available at that time. Like, this is literally shapes on hinges. <laughs> and, like, I could, I could make this, or, you know, like, make an approximation of this, and I could claim to own an original. Catch me if you can in Brazil. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that there's a whole specialty that you can go into to you know look at the the uh layers of paint on a rembrandt and see if it's soft i mean they have it's almost like archaeological carbon dating on the stuff it's so and i guess that all kind of i think people who actually do it just think it's fascinating but it's the fact that it's done is kind of rooted in this whole uh, process that you're talking about that put stuff in a vitrine mm. establishes uh, really tries to keep it from being something that can be just reproduced. But the example I thought of, of reproducing something was uh, I saw somebody make a Mel Bachner piece, which was just a plant on a ladder and you shine a light on it and you have letter set lettering on the wall uh, that, uh, you know, marks off the length of the shadow. And I kind of thought, you know, there's work like that, that, that really lends itself to being remade that way. And I kind of, you know, it's like, why not do that? It's fun to have in your house. So. I'd do it. If I had the room, I'd do it. Um, also, something that I wanted to touch on the going from OK's questions about like the bootlegs is also there is a contrast on where the bootlegs are going to be because 
if like um, a huge part of the whole Camelo thing is that these are like on the every street, right? And so it kind of becomes accessible, uh, not just in terms of money, but like in exposition to different people. So if you had something like that being sold at these things, suddenly people that like would never go to a museum because it's like white bougie shit, it's suddenly like be, uh, be seeing these things and maybe interacting. And there's actually like some uh, phenomenon here of like, certain uh, movies or games get really popular here, even though uh, they weren't popular like in the US because like someone burned like a bunch of CDs with that game or that movie here and then like it got really popular. So it's really specific here because of the piracy and because it got to people that will never get to see that otherwise. And so I, I think like you can, because there's often uh, this idea, right, that you have to make art specific for the masses, like in a specific way. But I honestly believe it's just that um, you have to make spaces for that. And yeah. there is not a better space, at least in terms like of viability than the streets itself. Mm -hmm. So were fidget spinners big in Brazil? I was just thinking about fidget spinners. God damn it. I mean, <laughs> all the toys you can think of were big, were big in piracy ways. Like, I had bootleg Yu-Gi-Oh cards. I had the Beyblades. Um, you know, all that shit. Numerous but, ones. But fidget Power spinners Rangers. are different. Fidget spinners are, like, they're part of this, like, and, and like, to a lesser extent, these, like, kind of, like, fidget tubes got popular. Or, like, these, like, kind of fake, fake bubble wrap popper keychains right. like that kind of i feel like became a phenomenon kind of for what in regards to like your other question of like um people like needing like uh an escape or, or not, not like like people like have a hard time focusing so they they use them to to help them focus and like w i wonder if like if these pieces had gotten like popular as like a, a fidget toy would it just be another like little fidget toy i could like imagine like little mini versions of them and people just like playing with them and, and making millions of dollars <laughs> yep <laughs> i think they're a little bit there's a little divide between the fidget spinner and the, these kinds of works because uh, i mean i haven't ever been able to play with one but it seems like they would be different because like uh was talked about in the like if you try to go the wrong way they kind of resist and make you do yeah. it a certain and um fidget spinners seem like they actually you know are a tactile version of the the thing that you know i think the the mark fisher essay where he's talking about the kid with the headphones on and he can can't quite hear it but he just wants it near him, you know, the kind of distracting thing. Right, right. I can think of an equivalent toy. You know, Which those, and they're often like artisan made or lots of different kinds of people had them, but my dad even had a collection of them and they're often made of wire, twisted wire. And there's one shape that you have to try to somehow get off. Mm. These. It's like, it'll be like six objects kind of like linked together. But if you 
configure the toy in a certain way, like a, a one of the chains, one of the loops will come off. Well, like or like the nails that get locked together, and you have yeah, to it's the same kind of them. toy. Yeah, I was gonna yeah. say that if uh, this art existed in the '80s in a um, deregulated America, and they just like slapped a face on it, then this could have like competed against Transformers. <laughs> Because Transformers, like, also exist in that way of, like, you don't understand how someone created a little piece of plastic where, like, the arms, like, invert inside out and then, like, become the car body. Right. <laughs> I feel like those, like, you know, Rubik's Cubes and some of the puzzle toys still have a little bit of a payoff state, like, where you're going for this specific thing. And these sculptures are sort of never really in any final, like if you had a transformer that just, but it would instead of, you know, if you just pulled parts out and in of it, and it was never really one thing or the other, you know. Yeah, but like, yeah, like the, the transformer that got like fucked up in the manufacturing <laughs> process. Yeah, they kind of ended up like, like that sometimes. They're typically like half transformed in the end and maybe they do have that like uh got stuck mid-stage mid-transformation yeah <clears throat> oh yeah i also kept thinking about the friggin moma design store type fidget toys like office fidget toys yeah like metal metal pricklies that you make the handprint in or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Like, it could have easily ended up as one of those. It probably yep. is, right? That reproduction that Vinny showed us must just yeah, be... Yeah, probably. Yeah. No, that's like uh, us. I, it's her niece's shop. Like, it's not... Oh, but it's, it's, okay. They sell other stuff. Like, it's not accessible to everyone because 200 Brazilian reais is a lot of money here. Like, it's a fourth of a minimum salary. So it's not something everyone can buy. It's not super expensive, like, uh, but it's still not accessible. That's like say. MoMA design store prices, kind of. Mm, yeah, it's kind of hard to compare because of like the inequality stuff. So I always yeah. struggle to, but yeah, it's like, it would be, I guess, like a hundred bucks in terms of like dollar. But, but that is like the museum store thing. That's what, yeah, that's right? what I'm saying. Like you, you literally walk yeah, 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 no, I'm agreeing, I'm agreeing. Yeah. I just uh, trying to like figure out how to compare. Yeah. And yeah, it's like super, you know, it's the most appealing of all of them, like uh, super perfect edges and uh, many colors and it's like plastic, super smooth plastic. I, I could see her, her niece or whatever tabling at the book the ps1 book fair and <laughs> selling out all of them it's interesting in art that there is this problem of stuff being made too precious and and uh, you know where at the same time there's another problem where you know i from mitchell algus talks about this this dealer who has uh you know interest in people who are from a few decades ago, often there'll be an artist's entire work just in a locker, just like a storage locker 
and then at the end of their lives they'll somebody won't pay the rent on it and it'll all just be thrown away there's there's like really you know a, that happens a lot and you know in a way it seems like a like personally i would like there to be some like something like a library that would i don't know that that state of affairs kind of reminds me of having a like a cheese glut and a food shortage at the same time and no bridge between you know like um the the, the pile of potatoes during the pandemic that cars would drive and and it was just a hole yeah. full of free potatoes <laughs> and everyone was fucking starving and so right. they drive to the potato hole yeah yeah it's like a there's an art version of the same kind of simultaneous over like throwing away so, something that people want and it's like uh i see i do go to you know like at my local library there's art shows but it seems like that that would be an interesting route in some alternative world for like uh more you know usually it's just kind of a local curated not curated but like a outdoor landscape contest but you know a venue that's not an art museum but that a lot of people the people who go to the library are, are more you know they're very, for more varying reasons i think maybe like i was thinking about the questions that are on that are on the on the page here but thinking about like um the first one is i it might it might just be like from the conversation everything that we're finding about this work is that it might be impossible to um try to use objects as a as a form to um, like mediate our relationships like uh, under capitalism because there's so many ways for us to imagine how these works can be assimilated and not many ways for us to think of how they could um, function as as it, as they were intended. And we just keep thinking of ways that like it, like they could be sort of like these um, sort of distractions that we've encountered previously. But I think that like the original intent of the work was something that was sort of like meant to maybe induce some meditation and some kind of um, way of like understanding um, self in a open way which is like you know it's it's been so buried that it seems almost like inevitable or something well i guess like this kind of comes down to the idea of it being like reproductible where right imagine instead of the idea of it being in the museum and you need to wait in line to interact with the one version of each kind they have 
And instead there was like the gorilla exhibit that was right outside the museum that was just like folding tables with them fucking lined up everywhere. (laughs) The museum is obviously going to be across from a nice park because museums always, you know, like generally are. And then you're just like, hey, you can take this object. We made it. It was super cheap. Just like go sit in the grass and like manipulate this thing. And, like, totally strip it completely from it being an object that someone else is waiting for. From it being in a space that, you know, like, the the concept of museum. Like, it's only, I feel like through the, through the ability of it just to be, like, a thing that anyone could have. Like, there's, I don't know, potential. I don't know. It's true. <laughs> there, sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. Thank you. Okay. Um, uh, I just find it, you know, it's interesting, you know, like, uh, I think different art has, you know, and different artists have different needs. I think, um, you know, I think it's, it's a, it's a good thing that, that art is available for everybody and that artists would make things for everybody to kind of like go back to your question on your PowerPoint. Um, but I, you know, I, I feel I still feel like there should be a place for the individual thing, and you know, I just I just don't think every artist wants to make something that's that anybody could reproduce. You know what I mean? And I don't, you know, it's not like it's not a value judgment. It's just like an individual need type thing. And does any does that make any sense at all? I don't know. I think maybe like the idea could be general enough like everybody can make paintings everyone can make metal little toys they don't have to make them look like to say i think saying that anyone can make art is the right way so mm-hmm. you, you make paintings in a certain way and people probably aren't going to make the exact same paintings as you but even if they're working in a similar way i feel like those ideas aren't owned and Mm-hmm. being open to you know other influences or you're influencing others and just worrying about making your own work and not about who owns that idea yeah it's like a revolutionary idea that could progress art yeah I, I think it's also like it's not fair to expect everyone to do everything in their lives in terms of like revolution it's not even healthy mm-hmm. And right. I mean, Ligia herself, like, sure, her work was about that, but she was studying and working with people like in Paris that didn't have anything to do with her movement. So right. uh, I don't think it's bad necessarily to like not have uh, work that you want to like. Uh, I mean, there are even works that can't be like if you're doing something that's like hard to get material or it's like uh, there's technical things. Right. Um, I don't think it's, I don't think it would be fair to expect that from everybody. Like, because then you're just, you're limiting things. I agree. <laughs> Good answer. Could you go into like uh, more about the rational, um, what the uh, concrete artists were like Max Bill, I guess, like what that rationality consisted of was it that the art that they made was very 
clearly delineated in some way or was it like something other than that? So uh, it was supposed to be like, um, they wanted to remove ex uh, subjectivity out of it. Like it was very much like an aesthetic thing uh, of like having the shapes and how they interact with each other. Um, and also like an idea of doing a lot of, uh, of like work, like serialized versions of like many iterations of the same ideas with variations on it, uh, mm -hmm. which kind of interacted with like the idea of, of all the uh, development in economics here, like make it, it's almost industrial ideas of like art as like just sequence of iterations on the same things. Like I said, like the Brazilian artists even thought color was too subjective. Yeah, <clears throat> wasn't that um, a response to um, abstract expressionism in in uh, America? It was like, oh, these abstract expressionists are are disgusting. <laughs> they're just like completely overblown, and they're using color and form in the most subjective possible way to build a, a nationalistic art that just focuses on the self as um, this as a as a as a conquering force so in response to that it's like well we should think rationally instead of being like Oh, here's a whole splash of whatever I feel like putting. Yep. And then that rationality after a while got to be viewed kind of the other way is like, this is too uh, imposing or something. Yeah, I forget. For something written to that effect. And what, what Neo, so wasn't that the Neo Concrete Manifesto? Yeah, uh, so the thing is like the new concrete movement itself, it never got that big. Like Ligia wrote uh, years later, that, yeah, we were just a bunch of like uh, intellectuals doing our thing. Uh, that was, she, she was the one that stood out and there was another, uh, one of our colleagues that, that did too, uh, that then became a coke dealer at some point. <laughs> But um, yeah, like it never became, like, like I said, it ended up having influence, but it never became like this big movement itself. Who was the artist that did the Coca-Cola bottles? Um, he, he, he messed with the Coca-Cola label on some of them. It was like in a political, I think he put him in a corner markets or something like that. Did, did Jasper Johns do that? No, these were like real Coca-Cola bottles. Oh. Coca-Cola labels that he that he messed with. And I forget his name. I forget the guy's name, but he was he was part of the Neo Concrete movement. Oh, concrete guy. I don't know. He's a Brazilian artist. I forget his I forget his Maybe name. there's he's on the, the, the he might manifesto be on that, yeah. here. Yeah, let me get the cover. Oh god. Yeah, sorry, I'm I missed the Neo concrete talk. I keep my computer keeps fucking up, so now I'm on my phone. Oh no, no it's not on here. Uh, I don't know. Never mind. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. <laughs> no problem. 
Um, I, I was going to say before, like um, to Nick's point about setting up tables outside the museum, I think it's like an interesting way to think about like more accessible curation. I think we got to think about how curators are often limited by uh, certain profit uh, motives. So it's like, it's not in the museum's best interest to not have the show in the museum. <laughs> um, yep. So that's like preventing a lot of like engagement, but like museums I think are trying to actually like think about, you know, more publicly accessible stuff. And like there in New York, there was a lot of pushback when, as like the museum started to charge more and uh and they're they've adjusted a little bit there's been like more free days or like there's like pushback about it being uh you know it, it should just be like a library where anyone can fucking walk in but of course it's not but i was thinking too about like this is like a specific project that lydia was doing that's like kind of separate from her other body of work that I think could still be like venerated as individual pieces if or like be like respected in that way but if this piece had these like other other goals that she didn't necessarily want them to be um like gate kept by her family for example after her death and shit like that um yeah, I think it's totally fair game to like, uh, you know, and the MoMA can afford to make, like it's such cheap materials. You can make so many of them. Like you could make so many of them and have it be this whole. They even make the replicas, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, they made, but they can make like so much, so many more of the replicas. Yeah. Like, it's um, a lot of them. This is, this is a, a, I don't know, a pivot off of that, but imagine if we um if we open up a craft bar and rather than have people do string art or do paint by numbers we instead have drunk wine moms recreate this artwork and then have them ponder their existence <laughs> rather than have like a bad version of like starry night that they're not actually ever going to hang up and they might they might uh have a hard time uh working with steel if they're drunk <laughs> fair fair point they could be the paper ones yeah could be the cardboard one but yeah i think I mean, you know, I don't know, thinking back about that, um, <laughs> thinking about that uh, first question, you know, of, of like if art can like uh, have an effect on our state of alienation, um, it's like we can figure out sort of ways to produce and to disseminate these artistic objects but it seems like the objects because of its function it's just not it's it it lends itself to these sort of humorous 
situations like the wine moms, you know, or like the transformers or like, you know, it might be more like we're thinking that people can come together around these things, but it's really like um, maybe more like the, the costumes and performances that she was making might be closer to like breaking that alienation than these objects are because it's just a person using the object with themselves and self-knowledge doesn't equate to knowledge of the other or your fellows. So um, I think I mentioned this during the first meeting, but I think it was after class. Uh, I have a friend uh, that has this traveling arcade. It's part of these anarchist uh, video games group I'm part of here in Brazil. And he actually did his master thesis on, on this whole idea. Like a lot of the stuff about bootlegs I did inspired by our conversations. I could get him to do a talk here if there's interest. I like he could show, because uh, there's like, he has very uh, lots of anecdotes about like how it was showing, uh, taking the, the arcade to like a flea market fair compared to like taking it to a gaming event. I like the different reactions and how like, the gaming event, everyone thought of it was lame and shit. And then on the the streets, people like a lot of people never then didn't pay attention to it, like played it. And it's all like bootleg. Uh, it's all games done by him and other colleagues uh, from our group. So that'd be cool. Yeah. Well, I guess like that's something that I feel that these objects could do, right? And I guess, like, the idea of it being an individual experience versus having it, like, help with your relationship to other. Doing it in a space with other people at the same time, like, separate, right? Like, and all, all kind of realizing that, like, there isn't a right way to do that, as opposed to when it's in a museum and there's a single version of it and you're waiting in line, treating it as an experience rather than, like, hey, like, I'm doing this thing the same time you are. We're all kind of just, like, flopping these hinges around trying to make it stand up because it, you know, I don't know. I think that there 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 is a difference that that the the way in which these objects are or the the structure that's put around how we interact with these objects really make a difference on how they get treated the same way as if they're an art piece of the originals and they're in collections as opposed to the bootleg versions Also thinking about um, you know the later later things that are kind of like this like and forgive me but uh, like Oliver Elasian didn't he like do those tents or something like or made they made like as a part of a 
uh, it was like part of one of his exhibits. He did like he got people to to make the people in the audience to make stuff at like a freeze event or something like that. It was like these these tents that would that they would take to uh, countries that were afflicted with malaria. There was like these specific tents or something like that as part of an art. Not that it's not an art project, but um, I don't know. I just like that part of that whole reproducibility, that whole like, you know, for the masses kind of idea, you know. I think a lot of artists are ripping off of that. It's basically what I'm trying to say is that there's a lot of contemporary artists that are now lauded who have taken these ideas that uh, she did, she came up with, you know, and uh, not profiting off of it, but just making a name for themselves with it, I guess. I guess the relational aesthetics is a whole field. That's true too. Yeah, you're right. Yep. I don't really, I don't really know the history. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, like there, there's something about like the the performance with the intent to like to I don't know that like all right, we're gonna after we do the art, we're really gonna be together this time. <laughs> like I don't yeah. Know. No, yeah. Yeah, that's like the relational aesthetics idea, right? It's like, all right, we're gonna when we go into the art. We're just gonna be in the art, but yeah. the thing is gonna happen then. Yep. And then when you're outside of the art, you can go back. Right. It's gonna happen. It's gonna it's gonna appear out of nowhere like the Great Pumpkin and Charlie Brown's uh, you know dark. Go back, right? Her idea was that the art blends with life, and there's no nothing framing it as art so if it's not framed as art then you're just constantly living in it and you're in that hyper aware state then or whatever state it is that that state that uh that you were talking about Vinny, with the with jenny o'donnell after the exactly. john cage concert you go that's very at odds with the like um i don't know well i hope like if if uh what's rikrit tirvnija cooks you some thai food i think that in theory it's supposed to make you go like oh my gosh we should be like doing this stuff all the time or i don't know what it's supposed to do but unfortunately it i never got any of that Thai food, but I feel like it was kind of turned into a thing where I had that, you know, it's like a little kind of like going to the Eiffel Tower or something, you know, that doesn't transform the after, doesn't reliably have that effect for yeah. some reason. I don't know why. Yeah. Well, that's like, I mean, that's a great example of this because the when Rear Crit did um the food like the cooking food performances or whatever there was um i think i don't know maybe there was an initial one but during the recreations he that like there was a guest list because it was at big enough spaces where the there would be celebrities there so 
they ha the galleries would like keep out people who maybe needed food a little more <laughs> just because they were trying to protect their uh uh high profile visitors mm -hmm. and so that's what i i mean like there's a world where all of this all of these works can function as the artist intends like i believe in the in in the vision but it seems like the object doesn't have the power to break through capitalism's force of alienation and or i mean we haven't figured it out yet obviously so <laughs> like maybe and maybe with the right combination but maybe yeah maybe there's just so much alienation maybe it does work but it's just so off balance with the amount of uh treatment that's needed that is like you have to make you know a hundred million pod thai dinners before it yeah yeah or like there's a moment where you get like like when you right when you leave the john cage symphony then you have the moment but then you have to go back in like the that seamless existence of art and life just totally blended doesn't get to happen because we still have such compartmentalized lives yeah i feel like i can really even i've had that exact experience of almost you know transformative experiences with art for you know a day or a really limited glimpse of what what's supposed to be going on here yeah not going to get too into it now but this is a lot of what i'm going to talk about with the william morris chair because he has he designs a chair that he has a workshop produce and then people are inspired by the way that it's produced by the kind of design it is and the chair is is reproduced and still is reproduced to this day by tons of different people yeah And it, it carries his message with it, but and that's kind of why mm -hmm. I do it. I'm excited for that. Yeah, that'll be cool. Yeah. So I'll 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 talk about it more later. But I'm really <laughs> excited that that's brought up here with with this artist, and we're already starting to talk about it. That will help. I think a lot of that will help me to understand it better or appreciate it better. You know. I'm glad I'm glad for this lecture and I'm excited for the next one too. Oh yeah, who's the next one? Oh, well, I mean yeah. when you when you do right. I mean when you when you talk yeah. about William Morris is, is No, I know, but I know I'm, I'm not I'm definitely not doing it next. I Yeah, it's it's me. <laughs> oh good. Oh nice. Uh, yeah. I'll be a banger. Oh my god, get ready. It's gonna be yeah, it's gonna be action packed. <laughs> Um, does anybody have any uh, final thoughts before I pause? Because we, uh, we're just about, we have like five more minutes before 9.30. I guess the question I have is like thinking about all of these things, like how to create almost like a vacuum, right? Where you're able to do the self work or the reflection of your relationship to yourself and potentially your environment. 
uh, in a way, right? Because the going to the John Cage piece and then leaving and being, I hear everything, right? And suddenly you have a superpower because <laughs> your ears are now so fine-tuned or the discussion of when people lose like when humans lose senses their other senses like become stronger to pick up some of that ability to have humans navigate the world and like how do we create vacuums that are experiential but are not experiences because the idea of going to the eiffel tower or any of these other things are so built up in terms of the social context or like so built up in context of like you're gonna go and it's gonna be amazing and you're going to do this and you're going to feel changed. You're going to feel moved. And then you go and you're just, it's an erector set. It's a really large erector set with an antenna on top. And so how, like, I'm just thinking a lot about like vacuumous experience, like experiences in regards to this art, but just in general and what that means. And how do you how do you create a vacuum without having a frame? If you're trying to dissolve the frame, uh, yeah, what does that mean? Oh, uh, I mean, uh, the Jenny O'Dell book goes on a lot of these questions, uh, and she ends up doing a lot of relations between like this perception and um, perceiving nature like as it is, and uh she uses like a lot of, of her experiences observing birds and the like so i think it's maybe it's not about a vacuum but it's like creating these temporary vacuums maybe for like and doing like that constantly i think about um like i mention that every time but I, i'm not i didn't have any practice into visual arts and then i just jumped right into the hannah's uh, color theory classes and now I am thinking way more like about how I perceive colors and in the world in general, or how like after I started learning how to make music, I started hearing things in music I didn't hear before. So, and it wasn't like, because, you know, I sat down and I read like, oh, what is a chord? It's because I just kept practicing my perception of it over and over. So I think it's more like, uh, how do we create a, uh the practices and routines and cultures of actually noticing things around us more than just you know how do i find the one transformative uh thing because then it just gets like stuff like ayahuasca where now like wide rich dudes are just stealing it from the the indigenous people right because it's this transformative experience that changes your life and it's more about like continuous uh spiritual almost uh practice yeah, yoga too, right? That's the critique of white girl yoga is that yeah. it's separating it from the larger philosophy. Right. right. Yeah. I think there's, that makes me think of um, trying to do lucid dreaming. You end up uh, having to do reality checks all the time. So that you hopefully wear a cup in your dream suit. I did the nose thing. What's that? That did uh, try to breathe uh, with your nose closed. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, just a uh, constant attempt to uh, 
kind of looks funny, but I have lucid working. <laughs> <laughs> working that dream state. That's important. I think it's cool. I think I think I think we're like uh, at this weird little like intersection of art and play, and I think that's always an interesting place to explore. Oh yeah, I mean, I held off from talking from video games because I always do that, but this is <laughs> basically the entire opposite of the video game industry. Like, it's all about interaction, and it's the most escapist medium of all. It's all about comfort and staying playing the same shit for hours. Like, it's the most empty of all art forms. At least in its mainstream form, of course. I learned a lot with this, Vinny. Thank you very much. Thank you. I was very inspired by your talk, Nathan, so... I'm glad I didn't fuck it up, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have fun, let's have fun, lots of fun.